When witches go riding and black cats are seen, the moon laughs and whispers, "'Tis near Halloween." If you like to learn, but lack enough time, to locate the reason or translate the rhyme, with magical knowledge from ancient tomes on the shelf, I bring Halloween topics to geek thyself. Hello everyone, I'm Heather and I'll be your host for this podcast. Halloween is my favorite holiday and my favorite spooky time of the year. So park your broom at the door and listen for a spell as I brew up some Halloween topics for this week and the rest of October. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So this week, I'm going to be kicking off a series of episodes all revolving around Halloween. It's almost October 1st, and Halloween is by far my favorite holiday. Don't get me wrong, I like getting gifts, I like all the turkey and delicious food at Thanksgiving, but I've always loved Halloween. I love the aesthetic, all of the witches and the black cats and the creepiness, and I also just really, really like dressing up in costumes because I loved theater and I loved costuming and renaissance fairs and all that kind of stuff. So getting dressed up in a costume and having an excuse to wear it all day is always awesome. Also, I just want to throw out there for anyone who's listening and may potentially be irritated by it, I apologize ahead of time, but Since black cats and cats in general are often a Halloween theme, I plan to not edit out as many of the cat meows as I usually do. So if you hear my cats yelling at me more in the background than usual, that's why. It's because of the Halloween theme of the month. I promise that after October, I will go back to editing more of them out. Unless you guys really like them, in which case you could let me know that and I guess I'll leave them in. But to get into this particular week's topic, I'm going to be talking about some Halloween traditions and also sort of how spirits play into the traditions of Halloween. So previously in episode 22, I did the origins of Halloween, which does go into some of this quite a bit. Not necessarily all of the traditions. I didn't get through all of them. There were just too many. But I did get as far at least as explaining where trick-or-treating came from and the dressing up in costumes. So I'm going to touch on those briefly, but I'm not going to focus on those ones quite as much since that was all part of a previous episode. So the basic origins of Halloween are all the way back in Celtic and Roman times. The Celts of the British Isles, the warrior tribes, had traditions where they celebrated what's known as Samhain, or if you've ever seen it written out, it looks like it says Samhain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but their pronunciation is Samhain. Samhain, along with some other traditions, all got sort of glomped together and eventually became the Halloween that you and I know today. In terms of picking the date for Halloween, or, you know, how it came to be October 31st, we also have to go back to the Celts. They celebrated the two solstices and the two equinoxes of the year, but they also celebrated what were called the cross-quarter days. So basically, if you picture a circle and you've got the equinoxes on either side of each other, 
and the two solstices on either side of each other. So now your circle looks a little bit like a target with the, the X through the middle. Well, if you cut diagonally between those uh, intersecting lines, you would get the days of the cross quarters. And Samhain was one of these cross quarters. It also sort of marked the transition from fall starting to go into winter and that sort of situation. So it had a lot of harvest festival type vibes, a lot of harvest festival type of feeling. And one of the things that the British Isle Celts believed was that ghosts of people that had passed the year before could come back during Samhain and visit you. And so they would lay out gifts in order to prevent the spirits from coming to them. And there were even some that would do little parades out of the town. You know, every villager would have something to offer. You leave the offerings outside of the village and that way the spirits go there instead of coming back to bother the family from before they had passed away. Obviously, that is not exactly what we do now. There are still some cultures that do leave out offerings. Uh, the Dia de los Muertos from Mexico is a perfect example of this, where people leave out offerings for their passed away loved ones and have whole altars. For anyone who likes Disney Pixar movies, you may have recently seen the movie that came out called Coco, which... I loved it was adorable but that one is a great movie to watch if you are interested in learning more about the traditions and some of the sort of legends and stories of Dia de los Muertos and how it works and how it connects family and all of that so that's a movie I would recommend if you're interested in that subject and especially if you either like Disney movies as an adult such as myself or if you happen to have children in the house who like Disney type movies and Pixar type movies it's a great watch I definitely recommend it so some of the earliest Halloween traditions started with the Celts and then of course anyone who knows their British Isle history knows that the Celtic tribes were very heavily conquered by the Roman Empire when it came into England and the UK. And so of course some Roman traditions dealing with harvest festivals and some of their harvest goddesses also bled into that. And over time, those traditions spread throughout most of Europe, courtesy of the Romans, and things kept changing and evolving. Eventually, it came over here to the U.S., and here in the U.S., it continued to change even more, and we ended up with the Halloween that you and I know now, where everyone dresses up in costume and the kids go and trick-or-treat. Um, again, I covered this in much more detail in episode 22, so if you want to listen to all of the finite little bits and pieces, then please go back and listen to that episode. That'll give you a lot more of the background. I'm going to try not to reference it too much beyond what I've already mentioned in this episode because I want to make sure that you don't have to listen to that episode if you don't want to go back and listen to it. But... Another little tidbit that's important, at least in terms of the days and how we got to Halloween as a name, is that the Roman Catholic Church ended up with a holiday in Europe at one point referred to as All Saints Day. All Saints Day is November 1st, so it's the day after Halloween. And over time, the night before All Saints Day ended up becoming called All Hallows' Eve. All Hallows' Eve, of course is what turned into Halloween. It became All Halloween, All Halloween, like E apostrophe E-N, which is a way they used to write out evening way back when. 
and then over time all halloween became halloween and then became halloween like you and i know it now so very rooted in ancient traditions but of course everything has changed around a lot and then moving into our first tradition, I'm going to go back to the Romans. So again, I mentioned this in episode 22 briefly, but the Romans holiday that got sort of glomped in with the Celtic one that they had of Samhain is something they called Pomona. Pomona was the goddess of the harvest and specifically of gardens and fruits and things like that. And so as part of her festival, people would leave out apples and nuts and things like that as tribute. So for obvious reasons, this is likely where some of the traditions regarding apples and Halloween started. Apples from the very beginning were a fruit that was part of the traditions from the Roman side. So apples became part of the gifts that were left out for spirits. And over time, it transitioned into things you and I know now. So for instance, we've got the bobbing for apples and candy apples. So bobbing for apples, for anyone who's heard the term but doesn't know what it is for any reason, bobbing for apples is essentially filling up a large tub or bucket or something like that with a bunch of apples. And then there's nothing on them, it's just apples in water. People put their faces in and try to bite into one of the apples and pull it out of the water. The apples float in the water, which makes it harder to grab onto them. But specifically, this tradition also goes back to the Romans because back when the Romans invaded Britain, they brought with them, like I mentioned, the Pomona celebration. They also brought with them apple trees. And what they started doing is that during annual celebrations for Pomona or Samhain as it all got glommed together, the young unmarried people would have to bite into the floating apples or bite into one from a string and the first person to bite into the apple would be the next one allowed to get married. Um, this is a custom that's mentioned in a 18th century Irish book by Charles Valancey called Collectania de Rebus Hibern Hibernicus. I'm, I'm positive I didn't say that quite right. But those were supposed to be something that could indicate who the gods or goddesses wanted to have married next. And so it's something that they could do during the festival. Also, there was a tradition that girls who placed the apple they had bobbed under their pillows were said to dream of their future lover. This is something that does get brought up sometimes in media. Also, I don't know if any of you who are close to my age watched Charmed on TNT, the story of the three sister witches who, you know, had all sorts of things happen to them back and forth. But in one of the episodes, they go back in time because it's witchcraft, so why not? And while they're there, there's a Halloween celebration going on. And one of the things that happens is someone is peeling apples and whatever letter the peel turns into in the water indicates the first letter of the person you're going to marry. So one of the sisters does it and the guy she's interested in, who's actually a demon, is named Cole. And so a C appears in the peel and she gets all excited and it, it's cute. But that's a way where some of the traditions have sort of bled still back into social media and they, st they well not social media, but media in general. And they do come back periodically, we see them in storylines. Also, I know there's variations of this 
apple lighting that have been changed slightly. Uh, there's also one I know where now instead of using apples, people will use donuts because it's easier to tie donuts on a string than it is to tie an apple on a string. I've actually done that myself with friends at a Halloween party before where, you know, you literally just tie a string through the hole of the donut and then you have a, a long line that all of these stringed up donuts are hanging from and you try to bite one off. It's a similar idea, just with a slightly different edible because the donuts are a lot easier to use. But apple bobbing or apple ducking, as it's called sometimes in Europe, is still very much a Halloween tradition and it dates back all the way to the time of the Romans. Another apple tradition that of course most people again will recognize is the candied apple or depending on where you're from it might also be called a toffee apple. So for anyone who's not familiar with them this is a apple. Usually it's a whole apple and it's got a stick stuck into it as a handle and then the entire apple is coated in some sort of candy or toffee coating. They're super sticky, super yummy, not the healthiest treat for you but also not as bad as some Halloween treats because there's an apple in it. So you know there's pluses and minuses. This one there's no definitive knowledge on exactly exactly who created it. There is one source, an old news article basically, that talks about a candy owner, candy shop owner in Newark, New Jersey, creating the candy apple. The story basically goes that he was experimenting with candy for the upcoming Christmas season and decided to dunk an apple in it and put it in the window for like display purposes. They sold out really quickly, everyone loved them, and then pretty soon he was selling just thousands of them every year. His name was William W. Kolb, K-O-L-B, and so he is credited at least in one source, as being the creator of the candy apple. Now, obviously, they're sold everywhere now. You know, circuses, stores, there's candy shops that make them year-round. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. You can make them year-round because all you need is apples and some sort of candy coating or caramel. So they're everywhere. But in terms of the definitive creator, that's one potential option. It's one of those things where they've been around for so long and with food items, especially um, unless they're sort of premiered at a store or premiered at some sort of big event, it's really hard to pinpoint who the originator is, especially back in the old days. Nowadays, of course, there's social media and things like that, so it's really easy to tell who started something. But way back in like the 1900s when this would have occurred. Specifically, he's credited with doing it in, let's see, it was 1908. So, you know, in 1908, there just wasn't any social media like we have now. You just had newspaper printouts and whatnot. And actually the article in the Newark News that credits him with creating it is from 1948. So it's even a much, much older publication. So who knows what happened during that 40 years that he supposedly created it. Who knows if he actually did? There's a lot of question marks. But regardless, that's one of the potential origins for it. Uh, for anyone who doesn't care for sweets or has never had a candy apple, I will say that I'm sort of on the list, but mostly for me it's because they're so messy. There, there is no good way to eat a candy apple. You bite into it and you just end up with sticky gook all over you. It's delicious, but it's so messy. I'd rather cut up my apple and dip it in caramel, which may be controversial, but 
you know, whatever. It's what I'm eating, so it's my choice. And with that, we're going to go into our break. I'll be back after the break with some more Halloween traditions and where they came from. Okay, everyone, thank you for joining me here on our mid-episode break. So I want to start off by, of course, talking about the wonderful World Anvil, who is one of the sponsors for the Nerdsmith Network. They sponsor several of our actual play shows, including two that I am directly involved in, Shenanigans and Countless Heroes. Shenanigans is a bi-weekly podcast that's an actual play. Myself and the other directors and my husband play the characters. It's a lot of fun. We, as the title suggests, get up to a whole lot of different shenanigans, and it's a lot of fun. And then Countless Heroes is our network's streaming uh, actual play. We play five days a week, Tuesday through Friday. We play in the evening, and then on Saturdays we play in the afternoon. You can find us at nerdsmith.org content countless heroes. Or for shenanigans, you can find us at nerdsmith.org content slash shenanigans uh obviously you can also just go to our content page on nerdsmith.org and connect to everything that way if that's easier for you i also would like to again reach out and say thank you to all of my listeners thank you to everyone who has subscribed and is listening every week i really do appreciate it if you have the time and the wherewithal to do so i would love it if you could go review and rate on iTunes that really does play a large role in not only how many people see the different podcasts that are out there but also just you know for any of us creators it really makes a big difference getting to see that people actually are enjoying it and getting to see those reviews you know even if you don't care for what I'm doing if there's something I'm doing that you don't like I would like to hear that as well because helpful constructive criticism is always something I would welcome in terms of improving my podcast. And last but not least, please don't forget that if you like my show or any of the other shows here at the Nerdsmith Network, you can go to nerdsmith.org slash donate and you can sign up to donate monthly to your favorite podcasts or shows as the case may be. Because we're not only podcasts, we also have YouTube videos, we have streamers, we also have people who are contributors to the network either with their writing or their voice acting or with their art all of whom you can find out more information about on our website. There's also the public Discord where you can actually come and chat with us directly. As I'm recording this, I actually had posted on the public Discord asking for suggestions for my Halloween series that's coming up all of October. So we'll see what you guys pick out for me to talk about. It's going to be interesting. And with that, let's get back into some Halloween traditions. Okay, so back with Halloween traditions. So the next one I want to talk about is trick-or-treating. I did go over this also in episode 22, so I'm going to keep this sort of a brief recap. But essentially what happened is that over time, dealing with the All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day, something that people started doing is the poor would go to the richer people's houses and ask for food. And they would dress up in costumes and go do this. 
that gradually over time became more traditional and eventually children became the ones dressing up and going house to house and asking for things. Now, when Halloween first came over to the US, this wasn't a very popular thing to have happen. It did occur, and of course, when we had a lot of Irish and Scottish immigrants come over, you know, way back when, they brought this tradition with them and it sort of spread from there. But initially there was some pushback from various sources. Adults didn't care for the trick-or-treating aspect because they felt like they were being sort of blackmailed into giving the kids candy and treats, otherwise they'd have some sort of trick played on them. And then also there were some children who didn't like the trick-or-treating aspect. This had sort of started mostly like post-World War One and World War Two, because the U.S. had just come out of a big depression after the war in World War II time. And so some kids, there's actually a picture in the book I used for a lot of this information where uh, there's little boys carrying signs that say basically that American children don't beg, that sort of idea. And it was because we had just come out of a period of time where the American people didn't have a lot. And so they were proud of what they had achieved. And the idea that American kids would be going house to house asking for handouts didn't sit well with a lot of people. But over time, that got worn down. I mean, probably the candy had something to do with that. Because let's face it, what kid doesn't want to go get candy from people? Obviously, strangers, candy, there's a whole thing there. But that's a different story. And so it became more popular and spread. And we ended up with the trick-or-treating that you and I know now today. The last big tradition that I want to talk about for this episode is pumpkin carving or specifically the jack-o'-lantern so if you go back in time again to sort of the celtic times and when the romans had taken over you can find a myth regarding a man often nicknamed stingy jack so in this irish legend stingy jack He's uh, this really miserable old man. He's crotchety and angry, and he likes to play nasty tricks on everyone. So he really isn't a very good person. But, I mean, and this includes everyone, his family, his friends, and also the devil. He plays tricks on everybody. So one evening, Stingy Jack invited the devil over to have a drink with him. But, of course, Stingy Jack, being stingy, had no money. And so he refused to pay for the drink and convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin so that he could buy the drink. And then he would pay for the drink and drink with the devil. Of course, once the devil turned himself into a coin, Jack didn't use the coin to pay for anything. And he only allowed the devil to return to his normal form on the condition that he wouldn't bother Jack for at least one year. Of course, the devil agreed because he wanted to change back into himself how exactly Jack had the power over the devil isn't explained, but I assume it had something to do with the fact that he tricked him and so he now had power over him. That's a very common mythos in a lot of old traditions and stories. So a year later, Jack again tricks the devil, but this time he tricks the devil into climbing up a tree and Jack wouldn't let him down until the devil promised not to let or not to bother Jack for 10 years. And as part of the deal, the devil also had to agree that when Jack passed away, the devil wouldn't claim his soul because Jack knew he wasn't a very good person and didn't want to go to hell. I can kind of understand his reasoning on that. It still is, you know, real 
iffy. I mean, he's a crotchety, angry, generally considered horrible person, but he managed to pull one over on the devil, so he ended up with something, I guess. Anyway, not long after that last deal, Jack does pass away. But of course, God doesn't want this crotchety, angry, tricky, just not nice person in heaven. So he refuses him entry. And because of that, the devil, who also cannot take him into hell because of his agreement with him, isn't allowed to bring him there either. So he can't allow Jack into his domain either. So, of course, Jack, being turned away from both places, is essentially left to wander the earth aimlessly. Of course, depending on your religious preferences, you may think, well, why isn't he just in purgatory? Honestly, the mythos I found on this didn't go into that. But either way, Jack is now wandering around and he's just wandering the earth as a lost soul. The devil, in a rare moment of empathy, felt pity for Jack and gave him a piece of burning coal so that he could see in the darkness. Since he was now doomed to walk the earth forever, Jack took a turnip and carved it so that he could use it to hold the burning coal and walk around and light his path with it. So because of that, there are some Irish stories of people who have claimed to have seen this ghostly figure whom they started referring to as Jack of the Lantern, and he's walking around as a ghost holding his little lantern out. And of course, eventually Jack of the Lantern became shortened to Jack-o'-lantern, as so often happens throughout history. So with this story, this legend that existed, it started to become a tradition in Ireland to carve out and hollow out things like turnips and potatoes, sometimes even beets, and use them to hold candles in. So basically turning these different vegetables into lanterns like Jack did. Then, of course, Irish immigrants started coming to America in the mid-1800s, and they settled in, and they found that there was another vegetable available to them that was even better for their purposes, and that is the pumpkin. So the pumpkin was bigger, it was native to North America, so it was something that these new immigrants had easy access to. And it was because it's so much bigger and so hollow inside, a lot easier for them to carve out and turn into these lanterns. So they started carving and creating the jack-o'-lanterns, and those became the jack-o'-lanterns that you and I now know today. I don't have specifics on why they started carving faces into them, but I suspect that it had something to do with other traditions that involve things like scaring off spirits by looking more terrifying. So if they wanted Jack to leave them alone, carving these little vegetables and things to look like they had scary faces is going to protect them from evil spirits, that sort of idea. That is a theory behind jack-o'-lanterns that I've heard before from other sources, and I do think there's definitely some credence to it because, like I said, there's a lot of traditions of if you do X, Y, Z, it'll scare spirits away and you'll be safe. For instance, going back again to the Celtic mythology, the original Samhain, they left out fruits and vegetables and sacrifices basically to their ancestors in order to keep them away and protect themselves from being haunted by any angry or vengeful or evil spirits. So the idea that carving something to look scary and putting a light in it to shine out and ward off some sort of evil spirit or malevolent spirit such as Stingy Jack does actually make sense. It also potentially could have been in homage to the fact that, 
you know, that was the only thing you could see of Stingy Jack, so maybe over time it became his face. It's hard to say. Another sort of legend that involves pumpkins, or at least that I grew up associating with pumpkins, is the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Now, this largely has to do, I believe, with the really, really old cartoon of Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman was throwing pumpkins at him. From what I've been able to look up, the traditional story doesn't actually involve the Headless Horseman throwing flaming pumpkins. Instead, it talks about the Headless Horseman searching for his head on the battlefields, but then also throwing his head at Ichabod Crane. So I don't know exactly how those two correlate. Maybe it was supposed to be pumpkins and just wasn't well described, or he had someone else's head he was using. It's hard to say. The overall story of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is something that I think most people know at least bits and pieces of. Essentially, the short, short, short version is that Ichabod Crane is a sort of lanky, nerdy schoolmaster who ends up going from Connecticut, where he was trained, to this small town in New York called Sleepy Hollow. Specifically, it's outside of a settlement called Terrytown, but Terrytown was right next to, or had Sleepy Hollow in it as a little area subset and it's an area that historically is known for having sort of Native American mythos and ghost stories and haunting stories and all that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow or The Headless Horseman is set in 1790 roughly and Ichabod Crane goes to this small town, he's teaching there, and he butts heads with a man named Abraham Von Brunt or Brom Bones as he's sometimes called, who's sort of the rowdy guy in town. And they both start vying for the hand of the 18-year-old daughter of a wealthy local farmer named Katrina Von Tassel. Katrina, of course, is going back and forth between the two, hasn't really set her decision on one or the other. And then at a Halloween celebration, everyone's at the homestead, they're talking, Ichabod's there and so is Abraham and Abraham and his buddies start telling stories about ghosts and spirits and legends of the area and of course Ichabod being a rather superstitious and jittery fellow is terrified of these stories. He had planned to propose to Katrina but that sort of gets waylaid and then on his way home he perceives himself being attacked by the Headless Horseman. Now in the cartoon that I saw growing up essentially what was happening is that there were trees and things catching on his clothing that scared him initially but then he did see the spirit of the headless horseman or at least what he thought was the spirit of the headless horseman and there's sort of a vague ending in terms of what actually happens there's allusions to the fact that Abraham may have been dressed up as the Headless Horseman to scare away Ichabod. And there's also allusions that, you know, people suspect he actually was spirited away because Ichabod Crane is never seen in town again. His horse is seen wandering around and there's, you know, supposedly sightings of his melancholy spirit, that sort of thing. And mysterious shattered pumpkins, which again goes back to the whole pumpkins in um, 
Halloween mythos and where they come in. So there is that aspect also. That sort of imagery makes jack-o'-lanterns seem much more scary. And it's uh, one example of ways where we see it pop up in media that is Halloween related. And of course, if you look up Halloween imagery or Halloween children's books or anything like that, jack-o'-lanterns are everywhere. And I think part of the reason they became so popular, besides the fact that there was the Irish and Scottish traditions of carving them into these jack-o'-lanterns because of Stingy Jack, there's also something that's very wholesome about carving a pumpkin and using it as decoration. Pumpkins are easy to find here in the United States where Halloween is the most prevalent. Um, it is practiced in other countries, especially now because, of course, as I've mentioned before, America likes to export its culture. So our culture, including Halloween, has been exported around the world in the form that we created, which is the Halloween you and I know. But carving a pumpkin is a very wholesome activity to do with your family. It's something that the adults and children can do together because, of course, the adults are not going to let the children use the knives themselves and cut up a pumpkin, but they can cut the pumpkin and then the kids can carve out the insides and you can bake the seeds and eat the seeds. You can turn the filling into things like that. I mean, it's it's something that you can use as decoration, so it's something you can do ahead of time. It's a just a fun family activity. And anything that can be done as a fun family activity when it revolves around a holiday it's going to be something that I think sticks around longer and more with more prevalence for the holiday simply because everyone can do it and it's easy and for people who don't want to carve there's also things you can do like painting on the pumpkin is popular now there's things like that that just keep it relevant and keep it going and make it very accessible for everyone which makes it a tradition that can stick around very easily so with that i'm going to call an end to this week's episode obviously next week and for the rest of the weeks of october i'm going to be talking about other halloween based things and on Halloween itself, because my episodes air on Wednesday, which is when Halloween falls this year, there's going to be a special episode. It is probably going to be longer than a half an hour, but I have something special planned for my Halloween episode. And for any of you parents out there listening, please don't be concerned if you listen to this show with your children. It is going to be a family-friendly Halloween special episode. I'm not going to be talking about a lot of gore and I'm not going to be reading any ridiculously scary legends or anything like that. Oh, and I almost forgot the primary book that I used for this episode is called Halloween, A Condensed History of a Spooky Holiday, and it's written by Jake Henderson. Now, I did use this for my other Halloween episode as well, and of course also some of my information came from online, such as, you know, the dates for apple bobbing, and I also looked up uh, some more details on the Ichabod Crane Sleepy Hollow legend. I knew a lot of it already, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't forgetting anything, so I looked that one up as well. And just my brain likes random history info, so that got thrown in here and there too. But uh, with that, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for joining me for one of our spooktastic episodes for this Halloween season. Please remember to check out all of the other wonderful shows and productions at nerdsmith.org. 
As always, you can find me at amethyst underscore magic, and that's magic with a CK on Twitter. I'll be back next week with another spooky Halloween topic for the rest of October. And until then, please remember to geek thyself. Crosswords with Will Crossway. Advice and analysis for the musician at the gaming table. Available on nerdsmith.org or wherever you watch your YouTube videos. YouTube, right? Probably YouTube.